to part seven of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume 1 by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by A. D. Godley. Book 2, Part 7. Paragraphs 134 to 150. This king, too, left a pyramid, but far smaller than his father's, each side twenty feet short of three hundred feet long, square at the base, and as much as half its height of Ethiopian stone. Some Greeks say that it was built by Rhodopis, the courtesan, but they are wrong. Indeed, it is clear to me that they say this without even knowing who Rhodopis was. Otherwise, they would never have credited her with the building of a pyramid, on which what I may call an uncountable sum of money was spent. Or that Rhodopis flourished in the reign of Amasis, not of Miserinus. For very many years later than these kings who left the pyramids came Rhodopis, who was Thracian by birth, and a slave of Iadmon, son of Hephaestopolis the Samian, and a fellow-slave of Aesop the story-writer, for he was owned by Iadmon too, as the following made crystal clear. When the Delphians, obeying an oracle, issued many proclamations, summoning any one who wanted it to accept compensation for the killing of Aesop, no one accepted it except the son of Iadmon's son, another Iadmon, Hence Aesop, too, was Iadmon's. Rhodopis came to Egypt to work, brought by Xanthes of Samos, but upon her arrival was freed for a lot of money by Caraxus of Mytilene, son of Scamandronymus and brother of Sappho, the poetess. Thus Rhodopis lived as a free woman in Egypt, where, as she was very alluring, she acquired a lot of money, sufficient for such a Rhodopis, so to speak, but not for such a pyramid. Seeing that to this day any one who likes can calculate what one-tenth of her worth was, she cannot be credited with great wealth. For Rhodopis desired to leave a memorial of herself in Greece, by having something made which no one else had thought of or dedicated in a temple, and presenting this at Delphi to preserve her memory. So she spent one-tenth of her substance on the manufacture of a great number of iron beef-spits, as many as the tenth would pay for, and sent them to Delphi. These lie in a heap to this day, behind the altar set up by the Chians, and in front of the shrine itself. The courtesans of Naucratis seem to be peculiarly alluring, for the woman of whom this story is told, became so famous that every Greek knew the name of Rhodopis, and later on a certain Archidiki was the theme of song throughout Greece, although less celebrated than the other. Caraxus, after giving Rhodopis her freedom, returned to Mytilene. He is bitterly attacked by Sappho in one of her poems. This is enough about Rhodopis. After Miserinus, the priests said, Asuchis became king of Egypt. He built the eastern outer court of Hephaestus's temple. 
This is by far the finest and grandest of all the courts, for while all have carved figures and innumerable felicities of architecture, this court has far more than any. As not much money was in circulation during this king's reign, they told me a law was made for the Egyptians allowing a man to borrow on the security of his father's corpse, and the law also provided that the lender became master of the entire burial vault of the borrower, and that the penalty for one giving this security, should he fail to repay the loan, was that he was not to be buried at his death, either in that tomb of his father's, or in any other, nor was he to bury any relative of his there. Furthermore, in his desire to excel all who ruled Egypt before him, this king left a pyramid of brick to commemorate his name, on which is this writing, cut on a stone. Do not think me less than pyramids of stone, for I excel them as much as Zeus does other gods, for they stuck a pole down into a marsh, and collected what mud clung to the pole, made bricks of it, and thus built me. These were the acts of Asukis. After him reigned a blind man called Anisis, of the town of that name. In his reign Egypt was invaded by Sabacus, king of Ethiopia, and a great army of Ethiopians. The blind man fled to the marshes, and the Ethiopian ruled Egypt for fifty years, during which he distinguished himself for the following. He would never put to death any Egyptian wrongdoer, but sentenced all, according to the severity of their offences, to raise embankments in their native towns. Thus the towns came to stand yet higher than before, for after first being built on embankments, made by the excavators of the canals in the reign of Sesostris, they were yet further raised in the reign of the Ethiopian. Of the towns in Egypt that were raised, in my opinion, Bubastis is especially prominent, where there is a temple of Bubastis, a building most worthy of note. Other temples are greater and more costly, but none more pleasing to the eye than this. Bubastis is, in the Greek language, Artemis. Her temple is of this description. Except for the entrance, it stands on an island. For two channels approach it from the Nile, without mixing with one another, running as far as the entryway of the temple, the one and the other flowing around it, each a hundred feet wide and shaded by trees. The outer court is sixty feet high, adorned with notable figures ten feet high. The whole circumference of the city commands a view down into the temple in its midst, for the city's level has been raised, but that of the temple has been left as it was from the first, so that it can be seen into from above. A stone wall, cut with figures, runs around it. Within this is a grove of very tall trees, growing around a great shrine, where the image of the goddess is. The temple is a square, each side measuring an eighth of a mile. A road, paved with stone, about three-eighths of a mile long, leads to the entrance, running eastward through the market-place, towards the temple of Hermes. This road is about four hundred feet wide, and bordered by trees reaching to heaven. Such is this temple. Now the departure of the Ethiopian, they said, came about in this way. After seeing in a dream one who stood over him, and urged him to gather together all the priests in Egypt, and cut them in half, he fled from the country. Seeing this vision, he said, 
he supposed it to be a manifestation sent to him by the gods, so that he might commit sacrilege, and so be punished by gods or men. He would not, he said, do so, but otherwise, for the time foretold for his rule over Egypt was now fulfilled, after which he was to depart. For when he was still in Ethiopia, the oracles that are consulted by the people of that country told him that he was fated to reign fifty years over Egypt, seeing that this time was now completed, and that he was troubled by what he saw in his dream, Sabacus departed from Egypt of his own volition. When the Ethiopian left Egypt, the blind man, it is said, was king once more, returning from the marshes where he had lived for fifty years on an island that he built of ashes and earth. For the Egyptians who were to bring him food without the Ethiopian's knowledge were instructed by the king to bring ashes whenever they came, to add to their gift. This island was never discovered before the time of Amirtius. All the kings before him sought it in vain for more than seven hundred years. The name of it is Elbow, and it is over a mile long, and of an equal breadth. The next king was the priest of Hephaestus, whose name was Sethos. He despised and had no regard for the warrior Egyptians, thinking he would never need them. Besides otherwise dishonouring them, he took away the chosen lands which had been given to them, twelve fields to each man, in the reign of former kings. So when presently King Sennacherib came against Egypt, with a great force of Arabians and Assyrians, the warrior Egyptians would not march against him. The priest, in this quandary, went into the temple shrine, and there, before the god's image, bitterly lamented over what he expected to suffer. Sleep came on him while he was lamenting, and it seemed to him the god stood over him and told him to take heart, that he would come to no harm encountering the power of Arabia. I shall send you champions, said the god. So he trusted the vision, and together with those Egyptians who would follow him, camped at Pelusium, where the road comes into Egypt, and none of the warriors would go with him, but only merchants and craftsmen and traders. Their enemies came there too, and during the night were overrun by a horde of field-mice that gnawed quivers and bows and the handles of shields, with the result that many were killed fleeing unarmed the next day. And to this day a stone statue of the Egyptian king stands in Hephaestus's temple, with a mouse in his hand, and an inscription to this effect, Look at me, and believe. Thus far went the record given by the Egyptians and their priests, and they showed me that the time from the first king to that priest of Hephaestus, who was the last, covered three hundred and forty-one generations, and that in this time this also had been the number of their kings and of their high priests. Now three hundred generations are ten thousand years, three generations being equal to a hundred, and over and above the three hundred, the remaining forty-one cover thirteen hundred and forty years. Thus the whole period is eleven thousand three hundred and forty years, in all of which time, they said, they had had no king who was a god in human form, nor had there been any such either before or after those years among the rest of the kings of Egypt. Four times in this period, so they told me, the sun rose contrary to experience. Twice he came up where he now goes down, and twice went down where he now comes up. 
Yet Egypt at these times underwent no change, either in the produce of the river and the land, or in the matter of sickness and death. Hecataeus, the historian, was once at Thebes, where he made a genealogy for himself that had him descended from a god in the sixteenth generation. But the priests of Zeus did with him as they also did with me, who had not traced my own lineage. They brought me into the great inner court of the temple, and showed me wooden figures there, which they counted to the total they had already given. For every high priest sets up a statue of himself there during his lifetime. Pointing to these and counting, the priests showed me that each succeeded his father. They went through the whole line of figures, back to the earliest from that of the man who had most recently died. Thus, when Hecateus had traced his descent, and claimed that his sixteenth forefather was a god, the priests, too, traced a line of descent according to the method of their counting, for they would not be persuaded by him that a man could be descended from a god. They traced descent through the whole line of three hundred and forty-five figures, not connecting it with any ancestral god or hero, but declaring each figure to be a pyromis, the son of a pyromis. In Greek, one who is in all respects a good man. Thus they showed that all those whose statues stood there had been good men, but quite unlike gods. Before these men, they said, the rulers of Egypt were gods, but none had been contemporary with the human priests. Of these gods, one or another had in succession been supreme. The last of them to rule the country was Osiris's son, Horus, whom the Greeks call Apollo. He deposed Typhon, and was the last divine king of Egypt. Osiris is, in the Greek language, Dionysus. Among the Greeks, Heracles, Dionysus, and Pan are held to be the youngest of the gods. But in Egypt, Pan is the most ancient of these, and is one of the eight gods who are said to be the earliest of all. Heracles belongs to the second dynasty, that of the so-called twelve gods, and Dionysus to the third, which came after the twelve. How many years there were between Heracles and the reign of Amasis, I have already shown. Pan is said to be earlier still. The years between Dionysus and Amasis are the fewest, and they are reckoned by the Egyptians at fifteen thousand. The Egyptians claim to be sure of all this, since they have reckoned the years and chronicled them in writing. Now the Dionysus, who was called the son of Semele, daughter of Cadmus, was about sixteen hundred years before my time, and Heracles, son of Alcmene, about nine hundred years, and Pan, the son of Penelope, for according to the Greeks, Penelope and Hermes were the parents of Pan, was about eight hundred years before me, and thus of a later date than the Trojan War. With regard to these two, Pan and Dionysus, one may follow whatever story one thinks most credible, but I give my own opinion concerning them here. Had Dionysus, son of Semele, and Pan, son of Penelope, appeared in Hellas, and lived there to old age, like Heracles, the son of Amphitryon, it might have been said that they too, like Heracles, were but men, named after the older Pan and Dionysus, the gods of antiquity. But as it is, the Greek story has it that no sooner was Dionysus born than Zeus sewed him up in his thigh and carried him away to Nyssa in Ethiopia, beyond Egypt. And as for Pan, 
the Greeks do not know what became of him after his birth. It is therefore plain to me that the Greeks learnt the names of these two gods later than the names of all the others, and trace the birth of both to the time when they gained the knowledge. So far I have recorded what the Egyptians themselves say. I shall now relate what is recorded alike by Egyptians and foreigners, and shall add something of what I myself have seen. After the reign of the priest of Hephaestus, the Egyptians were made free, but they could never live without a king. So they divided Egypt into twelve districts, and set up twelve kings. These kings intermarried, and agreed to be close friends, no one deposing another, or seeking to possess more than another. The reason for this agreement, which they scrupulously kept, was this. No sooner were they established in their districts, than an oracle was given them, that whichever of them poured a libation from a bronze vessel in the temple of Hephaestus, where, as in all the temples they used to assemble, would be king of all Egypt. Moreover, they decided to preserve the memory of their names by a common memorial, and so they made a labyrinth, a little way beyond Lake Moiris, and near the place called the City of Crocodiles. I have seen it myself, and indeed words cannot describe it. If one were to collect the walls and evidence of other efforts of the Greeks, the sum would not amount to the labour and cost of this labyrinth. And yet the temple at Ephesus and the one on Samos are noteworthy. Though the pyramids beg a description, and each one of them is a match for many great monuments built by Greeks, this maze surpasses even the pyramids. It has twelve roofed courts with doors facing each other, six face north and six south, in two continuous lines, all within one outer wall. There are also double sets of chambers, three thousand altogether, fifteen hundred above, and the same number underground. We ourselves viewed those that are above ground, and speak of what we have seen, but we learnt through conversation about the underground chambers. The Egyptian caretakers would by no means show them, as they were, they said, the burial vaults of the kings who first built this labyrinth, and of the sacred crocodiles. Thus we can only speak from hearsay of the lower chambers. The upper we saw for ourselves, and they are creations greater than human. The exits of the chambers, and the mazy passages hither and thither through the courts, were an unending marvel to us, as we passed from court to apartment, and from apartment to colonnade, from colonnades again to more chambers, and then into yet more courts. Over all this is a roof, made of stone like the walls, and the walls are covered with cut figures, and every court is set around with pillars of white stone, very precisely fitted together. Near the corner where the labyrinth ends, stands a pyramid two hundred and forty feet high, on which great figures are cut. A passage to this has been made underground. Such is this labyrinth, and still more marvellous is Lake Moiris, on which it stands. This lake has a circumference of four hundred and fifty miles, or sixty skini, as much as the whole seaboard of Egypt. Its length is from north to south. The deepest part has a depth of fifty fathoms. That it has been dug out and made by men's hands, the lake shows for itself, for almost in the middle of it stand two pyramids, so built that fifty fathoms of each are below, and fifty above the water. 
Atop each is a colossal stone figure seated on a throne. Thus these pyramids are a hundred fathoms high, and a hundred fathoms equal a furlong of six hundred feet, the fathom measuring six feet or four cubits, the foot four spans, and the cubit six spans. The water of the lake is not natural, for the country here is exceedingly arid, but brought by a channel from the Nile. Six months it flows into the lake, and six back into the river. For the six months that it flows out of the lake, the daily take of fish brings a silver talent into the royal treasury, and twenty minae for each day of the flow into the lake. Furthermore, the natives said that this lake drains underground into the Libyan Sirtis, and extends under the mountains that are above Memphis, having the inland country on its west. When I could not see anywhere the earth taken from the digging of this lake, since this was curious to me, I asked those who lived nearest the lake where the stuff was that had been dug out. They told me where it had been carried, and I readily believed them, for I had heard of a similar thing happening in the Assyrian city of Ninus. Sardanapalus, king of Ninus, had great wealth, which he kept in an underground treasury. Some thieves plotted to carry it off. They surveyed their course, and dug an underground passage from their own house to the palace, carrying the earth taken out of the passage dug by night to the Tigris, which runs past Ninus, until at last they accomplished their end. This, I was told, had happened when the Egyptian lake was dug, except that the work went on not by night, but by day. The Egyptians bore the earth dug out by them to the Nile, to be caught and scattered, as was to be expected, by the river. Thus is this lake said to have been dug. End of Book 2, Part 7